Well, thank you for that rousing ovation. <laughs> uh, I'm not, they don't clap for me at home, so I guess that's one of the joys of going on the road. Uh, people are polite and kind and clap, so thank you very much. I feel very much at home here at uh, Calvary Bible Church, and it's my second time to be here. I was here a couple of years ago and have great love and admiration for your pastor, uh, Jack Hughes. And I know we're like-minded and kindred spirits, and so it's a wonderful fit to be able to step in and minister here. Uh, Tom Barker asked me to come and speak at the men's conference, and it has worked out in my schedule to be able to be here for that. We had a wonderful time uh, Friday evening and yesterday morning for two sessions as we look together as men um, into John chapter 15. And so we have extended uh, the last session to this morning, and probably most of you were not at the men's conference. We have many wonderful ladies and some visitors as well. And so what I need to do is to give you a little bit of a running start. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15, today we want to look at verses 7 through 11, but I need to introduce you to this text and uh, for you to step into the flow of what our Lord is saying. Uh, before I read the passage that we will be looking at, though, I need to set the context and let you know uh, the setting in which these words are given. It is the night before our Lord's crucifixion. He is in Jerusalem. He knows that the hour for Him to be glorified has now come. And He gathers His disciples in the upper room to give them last instruction. It's a very dramatic moment as for the last three years, our Lord has been everything for them. They have been in the shadows. He has been in the spotlight. He has been their teacher, their mentor, their guide. He has provided for and met every need that they have. And our Lord is aware that in the middle of this night, he will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be taken off to stand trial six times, and then he'll be crucified the next day. And so there is literally taking place here a, a transfer of leadership from Christ to his disciples. They will step into his shoes and they will step forward beginning on the day of Pentecost and they will preach and they will teach. Christ will ascend back to the right hand of God the Father to his enthronement above, but they will be here upon the earth. And Christ will no longer physically be present with them. And so our Lord needs to instruct them in how they will be prolific in their ministry, how they will be dynamic, how they will be effective to carry on the work that he has entrusted to them in his absence. And what he says in John chapter 15 is applicable not only for them, but for us today, because we do not have Christ bodily with us. He remains enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, and the Lord has called us all to a great task, and that task is to fulfill the great commission. And so how will we succeed? How will we be productive and prolific in carrying out God's work? How can we do so triumphantly and victoriously? That is the issue for all of us here today. And what Christ says in John chapter 15 
It is strategic. It is critical. There's not a one of us here today who can afford not to understand and not to put into practice what Christ has to say here. In many ways, this is pivotal for you and me to live a victorious and triumphant life in Jesus Christ, for us to to see much fruit produced in our lives. I want to get just a little bit of a running start, starting in verse 1. But Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Uh, Jesus and the disciples lived in in an agrarian society. There were vineyards everywhere. Men would go into the sides of of hills. They would excavate the rocks. They They would move them and roll them to make terraced walls. They would move dirt around. And the sides of hillsides in, in Israel, especially in the Judean area, were stair-stepped terrace, and they would come in and they would plant vines, and the vines would grow, and there would be branches that would shoot out from those vines, and then there would be fruit. Jesus is drawing upon this analogy, and the owner of the vineyard would be the vine dresser, and, and he would be walking the hillsides, and he would be auditing and inspecting the growth of the branches and uh, pruning and lifting up and helping them be prolific in their growth. That's what Jesus, that's the picture that he is painting for us. He says, I am the true vine. He is the one and only source of life and source of grace. And any other vine to which we would attach ourselves is a false vine, is a counterfeit vine. And we're all attached to something or to someone to draw strength. And Jesus is making an extraordinary claim. He is saying, I am the one and only true vine. He is the only source of life. He is the only source of sanctifying and sustaining grace. And he stands ready to meet every need in our lives if we will attach ourselves to him. And so in verse 2, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, I think more accurately translated means lifts up and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. Let me just tell you, that's what God is doing in your life. If you are a Christian... If you are a branch in Christ, God the Father is continually walking through the vineyard of your life, and He is inspecting your life, and in those places where you are not being fruitful, He is doing one of two things. He's either lifting you up and placing you on a trellis or on a pole or on a stick so that there would be greater exposure to the sunlight to rejuvenate growth in you, and he is also pruning you back. And that can be a very painful process, but he is pruning all of us. In fact, in verse 2, he says, uh, every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it. And he prunes us by his word, he prunes us by, by his providence, and he prunes us by his discipline and, and by his chastening. And there is this ongoing ministry of God the Father in our lives, cutting back, but it is intentional and positive so that there'll be greater growth. Surely we've all seen 
uh, plants or trees or shrubs that in certain seasons of the year when they are, are cut back to just a, a, a stub and they look so barren and, and lifeless, but then there is prolific growth that will come from them. And that is what God is doing in our lives. In fact, I would dare say that we grow more spiritually during a time of adversity than a time of prosperity. That when we go through the painful pruning process that requires repentance and requires uh, our having to trust God in the gathering storms of life, that it really leads to greater productivity in our spiritual life. And it's at those times that we grow most in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the picture that our, that our Lord is painting. And in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. And he tells us how desperately all of us here today need to be as a branch abiding in the vine. So we must be abiding in Christ. I'll talk a little bit about what it means to abide in Christ, but at this point, just for us to attach ourselves to Him and to cling to Him and to rest in Him and to rely upon Him and to draw from Him all that we need in our Christian lives. This one, this one vine is able to supply all of us here today Everything that we need in our Christian lives. You don't need five vines. You don't need ten vines. You just need one vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the imagery that is being painted here. And as we come to verse 7, Jesus begins to talk about the fruit that is being produced in our lives as a result of abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he does not want the idea of fruit to just be a, a generic thought in our mind. He gives us specific manifestations of fruit that he is producing in us as we abide in him. This is what you need to be looking for in your spiritual life. And if you see this being produced in your life, it should be an encouragement to you that you are truly abiding in Christ. But if you do not see this evidenced in your life, then this should serve as something of a wake-up call for you that I need to be drawing closer to the Lord and I truly need to be abiding in the Lord. Now, big picture, if you do not see any of this in your life, then that is a sure indication that you have not yet come to know Christ. You may be in church, but you're not in Christ. Because every disciple will bear good fruit. Uh, Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. And so this is the fruit that he produces in those who are rightly attached to him. So let me read verses 7 through 11, set them before you, then we will look at them in our exposition of the word. Jesus says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's one thing you'll see in your life. Second, verse 8, my father is glorified by this, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's the second thing that you will see in your life if you're saved. And if you are in Christ, and to the extent that you are abiding in Christ. Now, verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's the third thing that you'll see in your life. And I'll give you some headings for this in just a little bit. And then finally, verse 11. If you're a branch in Christ, if you are abiding in Christ, if you really know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're really walking with Him and you are drawing close to Him, if there's that reality of Christ in your life. And then verse 11. And these things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What will be the result of your abiding in Christ? How will your life be changed and transformed? What fruit will you see? The answers to these questions are found in these verses. Now, I want to give you four headings. I want us to look at them one at a time. And I hope this will be both an encouragement and a challenge. I hope this will encourage you as you see this being produced in your life. It will be an encouragement to you that you experientially actually are abiding in Christ. And I hope that it will be a challenge for all of us as well, because none of us is bearing as much fruit as we ought to be. And it all goes back to our abiding in Christ. So let's look first at verse 7. And I want you to see, number one, the fruit of answered prayer. The fruit of answered prayer because... When we abide in Christ, we will see our prayers answered. So notice verse 7. Jesus begins with the condition. And there's a two-part condition. If you abide in me, that's one. And my words abide in you, that's number two. That is the condition for answered prayer. He says, if you abide in me, that first of all, means that we must have already been placed into Christ. No one can abide in Christ who is not first in Christ. In verse 2, he begins, every branch in me, that is a true disciple. We have been sovereignly placed into Christ, into vital union with Christ, and we have a personal saving relationship with the living, risen Christ. And that's really what Christianity is, is it not? It, Christianity is Christ. The Christian faith is, is Christ. It's not the bricks and mortar of this building. Uh, it, it's not the programs and activities. All of those are fine in their place. But what the Christian life is, it is Christ. 
When I got married, I didn't get the institution of marriage. I got a person. I got my wife who is seated here on the, on the second row. And when you come to Christ, you receive a relationship with the living, risen Christ. Paul said, for me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. So, it's only those who are in Christ and who know Christ. They are the ones, we are the ones who are now called to abide in Christ. Now, at our men's conference, I, I gave our men three words, what it means to uh, abide in Christ. I'm just going to repeat them very quickly, and I'm going to give three other words so that our men uh, won't feel like they're, this is being too repetitious. Now, I told our men the three key words that are synonyms for abide, because it's not a word that we normally use in our day-to-day language, would be remain, rest, and rely, rely upon. And if time were to permit, I could go to various passages and show you that the word, the Greek word for abide, and as I said, it's not a word that we normally use in our day-to-day language here in, in, in America, but it means, to, uh, it means to remain in Christ, it means to rest in Christ, and it means to rely upon Christ. But let me take another track. Let me give you three other words. Let's start with the letter D that define and describe what it is to abide in Christ. Now, this is critically important. If you and I are going to be rightly connected to Christ in our daily Christian lives and for there to be a supernatural element about our lives that cannot be explained apart from God's presence in our lives then we must implement what it is to abide in Christ. The first word that I would give you is devotion. It speaks of our devotion to Christ, a a close, intimate fellowship with Christ. It, It speaks of close communion with Christ, whereby we draw near to Christ and we fellowship with Christ And we talk to Christ in prayer, and He talks to us in His Word. And it's just like sitting down at a table, and Christ is across the table from us. And we look into His eyes, and we and we speak to Him, and we pour out our heart to Him, and He speaks to us in His Word. And there's this two-way vital living relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just that we know about Christ but that we personally and experientially know Christ in our hearts. To abide in Christ means that we draw nearer and nearer to Him and that we remain in His presence and we live every moment of every day as if in the presence of Christ. We may be at work, but we are drawing near to Christ. We may be uh, at home, but we are living in close communion with Christ. Our body is here on the earth, but our heart and soul and our spirit is in the very presence of God, and I am fellowshipping with Him. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And then second, the word depend, that as I am living moment by moment with conscious awareness of Christ, and I am communing with Christ, 
I am totally dependent upon him for every need that I have in my life. Every need that I have in my life. I seek his guidance. I seek his direction. I draw strength from him. I draw encouragement from him. I find in him joy and peace and and pleasure. Uh, Every aspect and every need in my life, I am dependent upon Christ. Now, we are all dependent upon someone or something outside of ourselves. There is only one true vine. And that one true vine is Jesus Christ. Now, the third key word is to draw from. Not only do I depend upon Christ, but I draw from Christ by faith all that I need. I recognize my own emptiness. I recognize that apart from him, I can do nothing. And I draw from Christ and from his word all the sustaining grace that I need to press on. Now, he says, if you abide in me, and then notice the second part in verse 7, and my words abide in you. It's a mutual indwelling. I, I abide in him, his words abide in me. That means that my mind and my life and my soul is saturated with the Word of God. His Word is flooding into my life. It is filling my my soul. Just like Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, cut him anywhere and he bleeds bibline. The man is a walking Bible, Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, that we too would be filled with the knowledge of his truth and his Word, and his Word is abiding in us. Uh, This word abide, remember I said it means to remain. In fact, some translations of the New Testament translate abide as remain. If his words abide in us means they're not going in one ear and out the other. It is sticking in the back of my heart and my mind. I'm retaining what his word is saying. I am owning his word. I am possessing his word. That's what it is to abide in Christ. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That the word of Christ is alive and it is alive inside of me. Martin Luther said the word of God is so real, it, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me. Listen, I've read other books. This is the only book that's ever read me. This is a living book. And so he says, if I, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, for his words to abide in us means that his word is renewing our mind and shaping our thoughts and establishing our priorities and setting the agenda for my life. And my whole life is being reoriented towards the mind of Christ and towards the agenda that Christ has for, for every believer. As his word is abiding in me, then notice the end of verse 7. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, this is a verse that has been ripped out of its context by so many health, wealth, and prosperity charlatans. 
Uh, this is a word that has a verse that has been abused by, by so many on Christian television and Christian radio, etc. That just, you know, whatever your mind can conceive, you can achieve, etc., etc., etc. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is the voice of the devil speaking through all of that. What this verse is saying is there is a condition. And that if you will abide in Christ and totally surrender your life to Christ and humble yourself before Christ and cling to Christ and draw near to Christ and yield your life to the Lordship of Christ and be sold out to follow Christ wherever he leads and make every sacrifice that Christ would have you to make and for his word to just fill your life and dominate your thoughts and and drive your life, well, then you go ahead and ask for whatever you want because your your wants and your desires will be so rooted and grounded in the heart and in the mind of Christ that what you ask for will simply be those things that will honor Christ, will glorify Christ, will extend the work of Christ Ask because your mind has been renewed. Ask because you are thinking the thoughts of Christ. Ask because you are understanding what is the will and the purpose of God. Ask because the priorities of the kingdom of God have now become your priorities. Ask whatever you wish and the gates of heaven will open up and the windows of heaven will be opened and he will pour out a blessing upon you that you cannot contain. That is the fruit that our Lord promises if we will abide in Christ. You know... Why we do not see more prayers answered? Among different reasons. It's because we do not abide in Christ to the fullest extent that we should. It is because His Word is not abiding in us and directing and shaping our prayers But the more that we truly abide in Christ, the more we will ask whatever we wish, and it will be done for us. What needs are there in your life that you need heaven's resources, that you need the provisions of Christ? for your life to move forward, for your ministry to move forward, the key is that we abide in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he doesn't say in order to ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you that you have to go run uh, a mile under four minutes? Aren't you glad that he doesn't say you have to have an IQ in the upper percentile? Aren't you glad that he doesn't say you'll have to lose 30 pounds in order to have all of your wishes brought to you? Aren't you glad that he just simply says, if you will abide in me and my words abide in you, if you will just be closely and intimately connected with me, 
If you will just deepen your relationship with me and deepen your walk with me and draw from me, ask, and it will be done for you. Now, there's a second aspect of fruit that I want you to see, and it's in verse 8. We've seen the fruit of answered prayers. Second, there is the fruit of assured salvation. When we bear fruit, it proves that we are disciples of Christ. Before I read this verse, let me put it to you very simply. If there's no fruit in your life, you should have no assurance of your salvation. And if there is fruit in your life... That should be confirmation to you of the reality of Christ in your life. If you see good fruit, you may know you have good roots in Christ. No fruit, no roots. Good fruit, good roots in Christ. It's very simple. And so in verse 8, please notice, my father is glorified by this. Well, that should get all of our attention here today. Uh, The highest aim for every believer is the glory of God. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. This is solely Deo Gloria. From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Listen, it, 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 brings, it brings glory to the Father who is the vine dresser for you and me to bear fruit. And when we do not bear fruit, it dishonors the Father because we are to be a reflection of the character of God in this world. And when we bear fruit, it all goes back to the vine dresser. But notice at the end of verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Now watch this. And so prove to be my disciples. As there is fruit, as there is much fruit that is being produced by God in our lives, it becomes an assurance to our soul that I am rightly related to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you, none of us here today can fake it regarding bearing fruit. Now, there are some Christians who try to scotch tape plastic fruit to the branches of their lives. And it's disgusting. It doesn't look good. It's just empty religion. And they have a dead testimony. They don't even know the Lord. They don't know that they don't know that they don't know the Lord. They're just going through the empty motions of of religiosity. They are the ultimate play actors in church. But those who do know Christ, God is at work within them both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Being persuaded of this, that he who began a good work in me shall perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when there is the reality of the risen Christ in my life, 
There will be, there will be, there must be fruit being produced in my life. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but there will be fruit. Now, as I see fruit in my life, that becomes a validation that I am a true disciple who is connected to the true vine. Have you ever known of someone who prayed the sinner's prayer and their life never changed? Maybe that's true of your life. I, I, I meet people all the time. They give me a, their testimony, something like this. Well, when I was whatever age, I, I, I prayed and committed my life to Christ, but I just continued to run with the world and live like the devil. And it wasn't until 15 years later or 20 years later uh, that I finally came to the place where I redecorated my life and, and, and gave myself to the Lord. Well, I promise you this, they were not saved 15 years ago. Because if they had been saved, there would have been a radical change and a radical transformation of their life. And there would have begun the process of fruit being produced in their lives. There's no way anyone can come to know the living Christ and your life does not change. That is impossible. How can we know that when we prayed, it was real? How can we know that when I went through the motions of confessing my sin and, and committing my life to Christ, that I was not going through the empty motions of self-deception? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. James says that there is a faith that the demons have. There is a faith that is a non-saving faith. How can I know that my faith is real? How can I know that I really know the Lord? How can I know that when I die, I'm going to wake up in heaven and not in hell? Ultimately... The greatest confirmation. There's one on the inside and one on the outside. On the inside, if you're truly saved, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you and He bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. The same Spirit who convicted you and called you and converted you will confirm to your heart that you are a child of God. But admittedly, that can be rather subjective. I mean, what does that feel like? There's also the outward evidence. The inward testimony of the Holy Spirit and the outward testimony of the fruit that God produces in our lives. That's what the whole book of 1 John is about. The book of 1 John is written that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5 verse 13. And in the book of 1 John, there are some 10 or 11 evidences of a changed and transformed life. And if you and I truly know the Lord, every single one of these evidences will be being manifested in our lives. There is the necessary fruit of a regenerated heart. We who once were dead in trespasses and sin have been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we are made alive in Christ, there will be the pushing out and the budding of evidences of new life in us. And the budding of this new life is the fruit of the Spirit and what God is producing in me. And so this second fruit is the fruit of assured salvation that I may know, that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not merely in talk, but in deep reality. That's what he says in verse 8. There's no other way to read this verse. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Every one of us needs to prove to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it will be demonstrated in our lifestyle. Our lifestyle will not save us, but if we are saved... There will be a new lifestyle in us. So this fruit that is produced brings us the assurance of salvation. So let me ask you this. Do you see evidences of the reality of Jesus Christ in your life? Do you see this fruit being produced in you? You need to. If you are to prove even to yourself that you are an authentic, genuine disciple of Christ. What a blessing it is to see God at work within your own life. And to know, that's not me. That's Christ at work in me. Well, there's a third fruit I want you to note. And it is in verses 9 and 10. And the third fruit is the fruit of abounding love. Now, verses 9 and 10 tell us this. Oh, let me just read them, and I'll explain them. Just as the Father has loved me. We could stop right there. What kind of love do you think the Father has for the Son? Well, that's a love that never had a beginning. That is a love that goes back to eternity past. Uh, That is a love that is so full, so perfect, that it could never be increased. It has never decreased. It is an infinite, eternal, divine love. It is an inter-Trinitarian love between the Father towards the Son, and we read of expressions of it like at His baptism or on the Mount of Transfiguration when the heavens open up and the voice from above says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father loves the Son in ways that are incomprehensible to us today. Well, notice the next phrase, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. If this were not in the Bible, I would not believe it to be true. What what Jesus is saying to us, as much as God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son loves us who are in Him with an eternal, perfect, 
infinite love that could never increase because it is already perfect. It will never decrease because it is immutable. It is unchangeable. It is unwavering. God is so intentionally focused upon loving us through his son, Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 9, he says this. Here's the result. Abide in my love. Now, if we can never escape the love of God, if nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, neither principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, and that whole list that Paul gives us in Romans 8, uh, 38 and 39, if we can never be separated from the love of Christ, then why does he tell us to abide in my love? Well, the answer becomes very apparent in the next verse. He says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, picture a circle. And inside the circle is the full intensity of the love of Christ towards us. And inside this circle is our obedience to his commandments. As I obey the Lord, I step into the circle of the experience of his love. Now, even when I disobey, the Lord loves me. But you know what? I'm certainly not experiencing the fullness of his blessings upon my life. Uh, God is a holy God. Even towards His children, God does not honor disobedience. What kind of a holy God would that be? Say, ah, it doesn't matter. Just do what you want. No, it is incumbent upon us as true disciples to keep His Word. In fact, His Word is represented to us in verse 10 as His commandments, not His suggestions. Now, Jesus is not some life guru trying to coach us into better living. No, he is a sovereign king who is enthroned on high, and every word that comes from his lips are commandments that are binding upon our lives. And as I walk in obedience to the commandments of Christ, I abide in his love. And when I disobey his commandments, I forfeit the blessings of his love. Look at verse 10. That's what he is saying. If, that's the condition. If you keep my commandments. To keep his commandments is to own them. It is to possess them. It is to live them. It is to keep them. It is to obey them. If you keep my commandments, well, here's the result. You will abide in my love. I want to say it again. We'll never be separated from his love. But when we disobey him, we're not abiding in his love. And when we keep his commandments, that is when we are remaining and, 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 and resting in the fullest experience of his love. So where are you today? Are you in or out? Are you abiding in his love or are you not abiding in his love? Well, let me help you answer that. Are you keeping his commandments? Or are you disobeying his commandments? Because the answer to the second is the answer to the first. 
If we are not abiding, excuse me, if we are not keeping his commandments, we are not abiding in his love. We have stepped out of the circle of his love and we have stepped out into a barren wilderness. That is a desert place. But when we keep his commandments motivated by his grace from the heart, we step into the paradise of the experience of his love. Do you see how important obedience is in the Christian life? Do you see that obedience is non-negotiable for any true branch that is in Christ? To the extent that we keep his commandments, to that very same extent, I abide experientially in his love. There's a fourth and final fruit that I want you to note, and I must bring this to conclusion very quickly. But verse 11, and what a positive this is. Some of this has been very challenging, and I hope you understand that I'm simply the messenger, and I'm simply echoing and explaining what Christ has said to his disciples and to us. But he ends on a very, very much of a positive I want you to see in verse 11 the fruit of abundant joy. Because when we abide in Christ, not only are our prayers answered, and not only do we have true assurance of our salvation, and not only do do we experience the abounding love of Christ, but we come to know the abundant joy that He alone can give. Listen. The greatest thing that could ever happen to your Christian life is for you to abide in Christ. This is the greatest thing that could happen to you would be for all of us to be abiding in Christ. So notice what he says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. And I think he's putting his arms around verses 1 through 10 and pulling it all forward. In the ultimate sense, it can refer to everything he ever said to them for three years. But I think intentionally or specifically, particularly, he has verses 1 through 10 in mind. These things I have spoken to you about abiding in me and that I am the true vine and that the Father is the vine dresser and I desire to produce in you fruit, much fruit, more fruit. These things I have spoken to you. So that, here is the reason why, and this is staggering. So that my joy may be in you. Please note what this says. This does not say he is going to give to his disciples a joy, something like the joy that he had. He says the very joy that was in his heart and in his own soul That very same joy he will give to us. And not only this same joy as if it would be measured out with an eyedropper. And here, have a little drop of joy today. Add water. Notice the end of the verse. Notice the generous 
portion of his joy that he gives to every branch that abides in him. Notice the end of verse 11. And that your joy, please note, his joy becomes our joy. So that your joy may be made what? Full, not partial, not a tithe, one-tenth of the joy, but all the joy that was in his own heart. He generously, he, he lavishly gives to us. Now think about this. This is a man who's going to be crucified the next day. This is a man who knows everything that he's walking into. This is a man who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one like whom, from whom we all hid our face. And yet in the darkest hour of his night, in that Calvary night, as he is about to walk into the garden of Gethsemane and blood come pouring out of the pores of his skin as he is wrestling with the will of God and the shadow of the cross is already being cast across his soul and he knows the crown of thorns will be his and that they will mock him and taunt him and he will be lifted up and to die for us and the Father will abandon him upon that cross. In the midst of that, this God-man had joy. I don't know what circumstance you're going through, but if Jesus experienced joy in the darkest hour of the human race, When the Son of God, the Son of Man, became our sin-bearer and became our wrath-absorber upon that cross, if He had fullness of joy, then whatever trial I go through and whatever difficulty I experience, in an argument from the greater to the lesser, He can give me abundant joy. Now, I want to tell you there's not one drop of joy to be drawn from any of the dry wells of this world. There's not one drop of joy. The world can offer us happiness, and happiness is dependent upon our happenstance and upon our circumstances. When the stock market's up, we're happy, and when it's down, we're unhappy. And when bad health comes, we're unhappy. And when the doctor gives a good report, we're happy. Happiness is all dependent upon what's going on around me. And it is a very shallow, horizontal line of existence. What Jesus is offering to us is a vertical line that transcends every circumstance, that transcends any happenstance in which we would find ourselves. And he offers to us a supernatural joy that this world can never give to us. No relationship in this world can give you joy. No possession in this world can give you joy. Uh, No promotion can give you joy. 
Nothing in this world can give you true joy. This is a bankrupt planet. There is only one source of joy, and it is found in abiding in the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I will draw near to him and be dependent upon him and draw from him of his graces... I will know joy unspeakable and full of glory, and so will every single one of us here. David said, I have set the Lord continually before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David stood on the earth. Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. And yet David said, I can live in your presence. I can look to you. And no matter what is going on here upon the earth, I can dwell and abide in you, Christ. And you give to me fullness of joy and gladness that overfloods my heart. How could Paul sit in a Roman prison cell and say, Rejoice in the Lord again, I say, rejoice. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Even in life's greatest adversities, there is supernatural joy for every branch in Christ. The ground may be dry, the heavens may be as brass, the clouds may be dispersed, and there is a drought in the land. But as I abide in Christ, there is the flow of sap into my life from heaven that causes me to live a supernatural life. Don't you want to live a life that cannot be explained by the things of this world? Don't you want to live a life that defies comprehension? Don't you want to live a life that can only be explained by the reality of Jesus Christ in my life? Then let us abide in Christ. This is our responsibility. And as we do, this fruit will be produced in our lives. May God enable each one of us, by His grace, to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God and to draw near to Christ and to remain in His presence. And to rest in his provision. And to rely upon his grace. May he bear much fruit in your life. This moment. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we feel the weight of these verses 
upon our heart and soul. We feel as though we have vicariously stepped into this small band of disciples and that we have heard the instruction of Christ not only to them but to us. Father, I pray that there would be a depth and a vitality and a reality about our communion with Christ, about our fellowship with Him. I pray that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I pray that you would allow us to see every other vine as a dead vine. Every other vine is a false hope that produces none of the things that we have discussed today. That there is the exclusivity of Christ. That there is the sufficiency of Christ. That we would see in Christ and in Christ alone is found the fullness of abundant life. Father, keep and continue drawing us to Christ. In just a moment when we will leave and get in our cars and go home, may the seed of these verses, may they have fallen upon fertile soil here today. And may they bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.